the preaching of God's holy word, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4 and verses 4 through 9. Philippians chapter 4 and verses 4 through 9. And this is not human literature, but the infallible, inerrant, and holy word of the living God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Congregation, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, after having celebrated our Savior's resurrection and victory over death, let us this evening look at one of the many very immediate benefits of our salvation that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the text before us this evening, we find a detailed and most powerful recipe on how to think and to live in order to find peace for our souls. Beloved, isn't that what we all want? What we all long for and what unites us basically with the rest of this world, our longing for peace for our souls. Our souls are restless and they long for rest. They do long for peace. Now, the world doesn't have this peace. It doesn't have it because it looks for it in all the wrong places. You know, all the idols that this world has health, wealth, fame, a good name, maybe pleasure, family, friends, drugs, you name it. Now, we as Christians do have access to this peace, and yet, so many among us live without it, live with a constant storm in their souls. And the reason for it sadly is, but it needs to be said in order to rectify the situation, the reason for it is that while our hope or such people's hope within the church for eternal peace lies truly and sincerely in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are true believers. While our hope for eternal life lies rightfully in Jesus Christ, our strategy for peace in this life is very similar often to that of the worldling. 
In other words, such people do trust in Christ for life eternal, but their short-term strategy for living here and now utilizes instruments or even idols of the world as if our faith or as if our Christ would only be for the other side and not for this life here and now. But you see, Paul in our text is not referring to the life to come. You can't make that case, but he reflects or he refers to this life here on earth when he calls us in verse 4 to rejoice in the Lord always. That's what he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And it is not just a pious platitude. We're very good, especially as pastors, we're very good with pious platitudes. But that's not what it is. Paul means what he says, and he says what he means, and he even emphasizes it just in case we tend to think that this is just a platitude. He says it, he says, again I will see rejoice. It's almost as he looks at his hearers, in his hearers, hearers throughout the, the centuries and the millennia, and see their strange look. Yeah, Paul, that's a nice platitude. He says, no, no, it's not a platitude. I say it again, rejoice. Well, this is the first and most important ingredient for peace for our souls, as he says, rejoice in the Lord always. This is the most important. This is the root. This is the foundation for any peace. He says, rejoice not in your health or in your wealth or in your cottage up north or in your boat down south or in your whatever apartment you have in Florida. He says, no, rejoice in the Lord. You see, joy is a key word in Philippians. And here in our text, Paul uses it in a very strong way, as he is strangely almost commanding us to rejoice. This is not optional. This is not an offer. This is a command, he says, rejoice. And it's such a strong command that he repeats it. That's emphasis. And immediately we want to object. These are the questioning faces that Paul has in mind. We say, but Paul, how are we to do this? How are we to be just joyful on your command? Joy is not something that we can just do. You cannot just command it and we do it. Joy is something that comes, that hits us suddenly and unexpectedly. Paul, we want to say what you're demanding is impossible. And maybe some of you think now, well, if Paul just knew what I'm going through. If Paul just knew how disappointed I am by this or that or the other person, if Paul just knew my financial woes, if Paul just knew about my depression, if he knew about my anxiety, if he knew about my uncertain future, my broken heart, or what have you, if he just knew, he wouldn't say such a foolish thing. And this congregation is exactly where we got it all wrong. Now keep in mind, or hear it for the first time if you didn't know it, under which circumstances Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, of which the key word is joy. Paul was at the time in the prison in Rome. 
and it was very likely that he would receive the death, the death penalty. At the same time, heretics were all around, and they also attacked his beloved congregation in Philippi, to whom he writes this letter. Then there were guys running around, and they were slandering Paul. Ministers of the gospel, at least officially, were slandering Paul. I mean, this was really the low point of a life, a life that might be ending very soon. And yet he commands the Philippians, who, who wrote him a letter because they were concerned about him. He turns it around on them and he comforts them. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. Beloved, our text this evening is a very important text. As in it, Paul shows us that, that there is a joy that that, that kind of rises above our circumstances. A joy to which we have access. And I will very precisely tell you how you can access it. There is no use of sermons that fly uh, half a mile over your heads and have wonderful principles like a Hallmark card. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's very nice. Can you tell me how I can have that? So we, I make it very, very I bring it very, very elementary, down-to-earth, very applicable, so that nobody can leave here tonight and say, well, another platitude. I don't do platitudes. Life is too short for that. This is a joy that you and I can have, and, and this is key for every believer. We first have to understand that so often we seek joy in so many things, but not in the Lord. And you have to understand, we are all to a certain degree hypocrites. Especially we as Reformed. We, we know, not we as, as Reformed are hypocrites, but we as Reformed should know best. We know that we have a sovereign God. We know that he controls all things. We know that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And yet... In the deepest chambers of our heart, we again and still look for our joy in the circumstances. And if you read through the scriptures and you read all these wonderful scriptural characters and how they fall on hard times and how they have to crawl through darkness and how they're being attacked from all around and how their life is not easy gliding, that's not an accident where somebody wanted to write a perfect book, but then every one of these guys blew it. No, there's a purpose. God is telling you this life is not supposed to be easy gliding when it comes to circumstances. Circumstances. It is about a faith that rises far above these circumstances. There's a joy that transcends these circumstances. All these things that we think are so important for us, financial security, health, wealth, I'm not saying they're bad, by the way. We all want them. And it is great if you have them. This is not a Marxist sermon. If God has blessed you, good for you. If you're blessed financially and health-wise, good for you. But you know as well as I do, it can be over tomorrow. And you want to be ready for that day, if in God's providence, it is decreed to happen. 
And you don't want to build on sinking sand because that's what it is. You can use your beloved spouse today. You can be abandoned by your friends tomorrow. There is nothing in this world, nothing in this world, that is guaranteed to last. There's something outside of this world that is guaranteed to last. And that is your righteousness in Jesus Christ and the gospel promises that you have of him and from him and through him. And how quickly these things, these idols that we have, can disappear, some of you know. I'm sure many of you have lost loved ones, maybe even recently. I don't have to tell you about finances. Just think of the Great Depression or the year 2008 or what is now in the making might be the mother of all these depressions with the inflation that's going to hit us. Friends or even family may disappoint you or leave you or just abandon you. That can all happen. It's not unheard of. It's all in the Bible. We have examples of it in the Bible as warnings that these things are indeed sinking sand. It is only Christ who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's no promise from anybody else. I will never leave you or forsake you. You just have to think a little bit back in your own biography. How many people of whom you thought, these guys are rock solid, real friends, or, or, or real, real relatives, or, or, or people of great integrity. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Any one of you can think of somebody. Maybe you have become those at some point. Backslidden to the degree of unrecognizability. And by God's grace, brought back. Nothing lasts. Nothing is promised to last. Apart from Christ Jesus, who will never leave you nor forsake you. Ask the people of Ukraine. Ask all those who overnight lost everything. Ask them. Ask them, how is it now? Where's your house? Where's your car? Where's your family? Where's your financial security? Where's your future? Where's your fatherland? It's all gone. But Christ never promised that this wouldn't happen. But he promised one thing. That he will never leave nor forsake his own. And, and Paul there in the prison in Rome, he knew that. He knew that. You have to be building on Christ. That's the first uh, requirement. You have to be in Christ. You have to be found in Christ. Not only by public profession. This is one of the most horrific things that I experience in the ministry. Especially in Holy Grand Rapids. You go to the dying and you ask them. Of course, I came from the outside. I didn't know the manners very well. But usually you ask them all over the world, are you right with Christ? And you get the most horrific answers. Well, Reverend, I was baptized. I went to the Reformed Church all my life, did profession of faith. I went to Christian school, all my school years. And he said, no, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you, are you right with Christ? Are you in Christ? Well, Reverend, I hope. What does that mean, I hope? 
What does it mean? You, you say you have built on the most rock-solid foundation there is in the universe and beyond. You say you have built on the rock, and now you hope? We must be found in Christ. We must be born-again Christians. You can profess the three forms of unity and the Westminster Standards and maybe throw in the Confessio Gallica, whatever I know, and you can defend them to death and still be on your way to hell because these things help you nothing. Not even being a stalwart in protecting them and defending them. You must be found in the content of them, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the person who forgives the sins of those who bow their knees before them in repentance. You have to have peace with God in Jesus Christ. That is the very foundation of the peace for your soul. It's a very dangerous question in our circles. Are you in Jesus Christ? It can very much backfire. Ministers have lost their positions over this question. How dare you ask us? We are a congregation. Well, let me ask you anyway. Are you in Christ Jesus? Or are you just one who grew up in the church? It's good if you grew up in the church. It's a great privilege. But did you grow up in the church with Christ Jesus? You see, there's a great heresy out there. In Europe, it's called Sandemanianism. And uh, it basically says you become a Christian by agreeing to the truth of Christianity, just by assent. But that's a dangerous heresy, straight out of the pits of hell. You cannot become a Christian just by agreeing to the truth of Christianity. You become a Christian by bowing your knees before the Lord Jesus Christ, being rooted and grounded in Him and Him alone, and living your life for His glory. As stumbling and as um, inconsistent as this might be at times. That is true Christianity. You must be found in Christ. And here is how it works for a Christian to gain access to this peace. It all begins in your mind. The scripture very often talks about the mind. Paul is here teaching us how to think. Biblically, the human soul consists of three parts, majorly of three parts. First part is the mind. The mind is also the highest in the ranking. The three are mind, will, emotions. The mind is the highest. The scripture addresses the mind. There is a, a, a biblical order to these things, to these three. Mind is on top. For example, Romans uh, chapter 12, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, our feeling-oriented society has declared war on the mind. Thinking is bad, feeling is good. Uh, well, look around yourself in this culture. This is exactly how it works. Arguments are being replaced by feelings now. 
and feelings are not accessible to arguments. But Scripture says the opposite. We shall be renewed in our minds. Then comes the, the will or the volition. That's our, our uh, will, how we decide what to do based on what we have from the mind. And only then, like the tail on the dog, come the emotions. Now, the emotions are not something that came through the fall. Emotions were there right from the beginning. But they were in their right place. They were about uh, being servants of the mind and the volition. But our postmodern society and pretty much all pagan societies have put this order on its head with the feelings on top. In other words, uh, I hope this is really a right saying as I bring it to you. In this case, the tail wags with the dog. Does it make sense to you? It's the wrong order. It's the wrong way around. But this is how society works right now. And they're saying, this society is saying, when it feels good, it is good. And I have this saying from a little experience I had in South Carolina when I was in seminary. I was in preaching class, and I was supposed to preach for the first time in chapel. And my preaching professor uh, said I need to wear a suit. And I said, well, I don't have a suit. Could I get an exception? He said, absolutely not. Bless his heart. He said, you preach for the, you speak for the living and true God, you're going to dress properly. And uh, so I went to a big national chain that begins with Wall and ends with Mart. And, uh, and I thought, well, I can find a, a cheap suit there. And I, I, surprisingly, there were not only one shop assistant, but two ladies. And since I was tragically born without good taste, except in choosing my wife, uh, I, I asked them, I said, you know, I went to the changing room and I said, how does this look? And the one, the black lady said, I'll never forget it. She said, if it feels good, it is good. Immediately I knew this is what's wrong with this society. Absolutely feeling oriented. This is how this society lives. Whatever feels good is good. And even in the church, it becomes more and more like this. If it feels good, it is good. You know, people coming to the pastor and saying, well, I, I have to divorce my wife. I know now this is the right woman for me. Well, how do you know that? I just know it. No, how do you know that? I just know it. Well, what he means is I feel like it. He, feel, he becomes a slave of his emotions, and then pastor has to go along, or the big fat tithing check is gone. But such a mindset is entirely reactionary. Do you understand that? If you live according to your emotions, I'm addressing mainly you young people now, because this is all you hear. Every Hollywood movie you watch is kind of like a mantra preaching to you that if you feel it, it's good, those who do what they feel are the good ones. And those who do what is right are the boring ones. Those are the ones who are bad. They are the, the tough ones who have no heart. But this is not right. Because if you act and live according to your feelings, you have become a slave. You're not free. You're a slave of your emotions. And then your life becomes a roller coaster. When you wake up in the morning, and this is what the world does, 
They wake up in the morning and they think, well, let's look how I'm feeling. How am I feeling today? They, they give up their whole well-being to their emotions. If they had too much pizza the night before, it's a bad day. But you see, you wake up and you look at the sun as it's rising and you say, praise God that he's God. Praise God for Jesus Christ. I'm saved. This is how you decide how you feel because this is how it works. The scriptures, for example, were written to address our minds, not our emotions. Otherwise, we would have gotten a pill or a drug or something if, it, if it's, it's supposed to mess up our chemical balance or whatever they say there is. But we have received the word of God, which we interpret with our minds. Your mind has to rule. The scripture addresses your mind. You live in the word and it saturates your volition. And as it addresses your mind and your volition, it will direct your feelings. And that is very easy to test. I'm not just saying this. I told you I will bring it very much down to earth. I've done this with generations of students. Take just 15 seconds. Choose a person of your family, your spouse, your, your child, your parent, and take 15 seconds and think of the best things that you can think of what they have done for you or what they have sacrificed for you. 15 seconds. If you do that, you will, after only 15 seconds, have the strong desire to go to them and hug them or thank them. Why? Because you have thought right. And it has affected your volition and your emotions. You see, this is how you rule your soul. You have to rule your soul through the mind. And not run through life like, a, like an eggshell on the sea in a storm. Being tossed to and fro by every wind of anything. You decide how you feel. And your mind must be saturated, marinated in the word of God. And that is what Paul means here. You think right, you will do right, you will feel right. And that's your life. That's how the life works. Paul shows us how to think in order to feel and live right. Look what Paul did when he was in prison, when he talks about his imprisonment. He rejoices because of it, or because of it, he can uh, share the gospel with the palace guard. When preachers with false motives arise, he rejoices that at least Christ is being somewhat preached. For him to live truly is Christ. And to die is gain. You know what's going on in Paul's mind. Everything's about Christ. Everything that he encounters, he puts not in relationship to his own feelings, but he puts it in relationship to Christ. And since he has long ago decided that he lives for the glory of Christ, he can not help but rejoice. Everything that comes to him, he, he asks, well, how does that serve Christ? This is what you can do as well. 
I, I often thought, you know, as I hear left and right people getting sick and sometimes dying in young age, I mean, it's not so unlikely to happen to one of us. And I thought, what am I going to do? I'm a minister, but then I can't preach anymore. Well, how short-sighted. Am I not a minister on a deathbed anymore? Or when I'm sick? Can I not preach a sermon from my bed? Can I not show the hospital that I have a hope that goes beyond this life? Cannot the world see in my hardship how faithful Christ is and be puzzled by it and think about it? You see, that's what Paul does. He puts everything in relationship to the one thing that is most important to his life, to his existence, and that is Jesus Christ. He says, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Now, how many of us can say that? And it's not, I don't want to embarrass you. I'm embarrassing you and myself. This is not a question of if, but of degree. We all deal with idols in our life, every single one of us. And I'm just challenging all of us to put first things first, to get our priorities right, and to gain our joy from the right thing and not from the wrong thing. So Christ is our foundation, our root of all joy and of all peace. Secondly, Paul tells us what to do with our fears and anxieties. I've been puzzled for so many years. I've banged my head against the wall why so many Christians are dealing with depression and anxiety. And I, I do understand some of this might have physical or physiological reasons. I think a lot of it is unnecessary. And I know this is a controversial saying. I just, I'm employed by God, not, not by the pleasing of people, you know. Uh, look, what does Paul say about uh, anxiety? He says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, it's all focused on Christ Jesus. Now, if you deal with counseling literature and you have experience in counseling, you, you, will, you will see one thing, and it's not easy to hear for some. I will say it anyway. Selfishness breeds anxiety. Always. If this life becomes all about you, then your fears will multiply because you're so scared that something could happen to you. And the best antidote, both for anxiety and for depression, I'm not saying this is a, a quick fix, but if you can do it, is to look away from yourself and help others. In other words, is love God and love neighbor. But if you love self too much, there's no command in the scriptures to love ourselves. There's only two, not three, right? You, you, you should not love yourself. It says you should love your neighbor as you already sinfully love yourself. Two commands, not three. To love God, to love neighbor, and to love yourself. It's only two. The third one is a sin that we commit. We love ourselves too much. Every one of us. That's in our fallen nature. But if, if you can, look away as hard as it might be, as mechanically as you have to do it, against all your feelings. Do it. Love God. Love neighbor. Look away from yourself. And you will find 
relief. This is Paul's recipe. If somebody builds all their joy and hope on Christ and in him being magnified, it will root out all fear. That's why it says that love drives out all fear. If we live in a Christ-centered, prayerful atmosphere, there will be not much room for fear and worry. Again, it's not a quick fix. It's, it's like a big ship. It's like a, a tanker ship that has to change direction. And that takes a long time to change direction. So be patient with yourself. This is not something that goes, you know, like a pill that immediately changes everything. Our Lord, when he visited Martha and Mary, he admonished Martha, saying, Martha, Martha, you are worried about and troubled about many things. Well, the Greek originally says, you are of a divided mind over many things. What does it mean? She is not single-mindedly serving Christ. Well, all that she did was good. She slaved in the kitchen, worried about this and that. But Mary had an undivided mind. She sat at Christ's feet. Christ was what her life was all about. And now this Christ was here, and now everything else had to wait. No people pleasing in the kitchen, not showing how clean your house is, not, not keeping a great reputation, just sitting at Christ's feet. She had chosen the good part, says Jesus. We need to be more like Mary. And then Paul talks about prayer. And he uses several different expressions for prayer. He uses prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, requests. Well, he puts them all together because he wants us to understand one thing. That we ought to pour out our hearts before the Lord in prayer. As we are told in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. We receive not because we pray not. And we are told to do this with thanksgiving. Not just to come with a wish list and say, I want this, I want that, I want the other. But with thanksgiving. Now, why does God say that? Why, why does, he, does he need thanksgiving? Does he need our thanks to be happy? No. God rests in himself. He needs nothing. Nothing can make him an inch unhappier or happier. He rests in himself, perfectly content. Why does he say thanksgiving? Well, first of all, because it's the right thing to do. And secondly, if we give thanks in prayer, if you try to do just a thanksgiving prayer once, you will realize that you're suddenly getting more and more upbeat because now you're listing not only for God, but also for yourself, all the blessings that you have received from God, some that you didn't even think about. Try to be thankful for only one minute in the prayer and see what all comes out. We have a saying in German, which I can not really transliterate, and it doesn't rhyme anymore, but it sounds something like this. Those who thank will not tank. If tank means sinking. Yeah, that's just my wishful thinking. But, but if you thank, you will not stumble because you will always be reminded how good the Lord is to you. Don't forget to thank the Lord. And, and such a mindset, uh, if habitual, will cast out anxiety, fear, and worry. And it will bring peace to your soul. 
the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, and it will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. You see, this peace is of God. It is not man-made. It's He creates it, and He bestows it. He's the one who promises it. This peace will guard you. It will protect your heart and keep it close to the Lord. The world doesn't know this peace, and sadly, neither do many Christians. This peace will remain with us regardless of circumstances. And this peace is experiential. There I said it. It can be experienced. You see, I have a problem with us Reformed. Sometimes we are too theoretical. Sometimes it's all about checking the right box and the right creed. But if you ask people, and we should ask this much more in in ordination and licensure exams, we should ask, have you personally experienced this? Have you experienced Heidelberg 1? Tell me about it. Well, I can recite it. Is that not enough? No! It is not enough. The devil can recite it. I want to see it in your life. This is the Christianity we need. This is the revival that we need, that we do not ascend, which we should by all means, but we should be able to say, yes, I vouch for that because I've experienced it in my own life. Now, so far we have learned that to arrive at this peace, which transcends all understanding, we have to first see Christ and his glory and to bring the burdens of our hearts to him, to God, continuously with thanksgiving. But we do not only want to arrive there, we also want to stay there. We want to live in this mindset. And therefore, thirdly and lastly, Paul tells us how to keep this state of mind. And he does this by teaching us again how to think, what to do very practically with our thoughts. Now he tells us, what shall we think about? Now if you just go back the last... oh more than an hour, the the clock is really a merciless taskmaster, but um, just think of the last hour. Was there anything else you thought of other than Christ and his word? What what is your mind filled with? Is 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 it athletics? A big idol in this country. Is it your retirement account? What is it? What is it that that captivates your mind most? You have to repent and have your mind captivated with the things of God and everything else put in relationship to the things of God. We have a stupid saying in the German language. We have many, but this is one of them. And we say, thoughts are tax-free. It's an incredibly stupid saying because it's not true. Thoughts are not tax-free. First of all, God knows them. God knows your thoughts. And secondly, your thoughts, as we said before, will influence your emotions and your will. That's why, for example, pornography is so powerful. We think COVID was a pandemic, right? Let me tell you about the real pandemic in the church. Pornography and adultery. Because people think nobody knows. And yet it captivates their whole life. Whatever you fill your mind with will captivate your whole life. You become a slave of it. And over time, 
And in extreme situations, it will come out who you really are. It always comes out. You cannot hide it forever because what you think, that's what you will become. Even the New Age guys have understood this. That our thoughts are extremely powerful. That's how God has laid it out. Paul here shows us the right way to sanctify our thought life. This is how you think as a Christian, Paul says. Six attributes. Think of the things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, of a good reputation, things of virtue, praiseworthy. Think positive. But not positive as the world sees positive, that you can do all things as long as you think them. No, think positively. Look at all things through the lens of Scripture. Put everything in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand really that your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, all these attributes, these six attributes that are enumerated here mean one thing. Paul is trying to make one point. He says, fill your mind with the things of God. Don't fill your mind with the things of the world, which will turn you away from Christ and unto the world. You are the commander of your thoughts. That's how God has laid it out in our souls, and therefore direct them to the things of Christ. Well, you might object now. Well, typical pastor. Never had a real job in his life. Well, first of all, that's not true. But secondly, well, you might be an insurance agent. For whose glory are you an insurance agent? Do you know what the Bible says about insurance? Do you have a way how to approach the insurance business from a biblical worldview? Oh, you can fill your, your minds with the things of God in everything. And if there is something that you cannot fill them with, don't do it. It's sin. The only way to approach pornography from a biblical way is to turn away from it. You have to fill your minds with the things of God. You have to live in the word. Young people, try something. Please do it for your own sake. If, if you see it as a favor to me, so be it. Develop a regular, do it this week only. No, that's wrongly said. Begin with one week. Read every day in the scriptures. Let's start with one chapter. Read one chapter every day. Begin at the beginning, at Genesis. Do it seven days. You will experience something that you might have never experienced before. Of course, that's true for adults too. I have realized this far too late in my own life. Living in the Word means not that you count many chapters, but it means that you regularly read considerable portions of the Word. Something will happen in case you haven't experienced it. Now, we talk much about God. We pray to God. Um, we come to church. We hear about His Word. And now comes a dangerous question. Do you know Him? Do you know Him personally? Or do you only know of him? See, there's a difference. And I'm not coming with some mystical thoughts right now. I'm just telling you, begin to read regularly in the word of God. Continuously, you will make the experience that suddenly the God whom you only knew from hearsay will suddenly, like a sculptor sculpturing out a wonderful statue out of a block of marble, suddenly you will begin to know him like a friend.
And that's why you don't pray, right? You don't really know him. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying there is so much more in the Christian life. If you live in the word, if you study the word, it will captivate your mind more. You will suddenly, the first thing you will realize is you live Coram Deo. You live before God. You live in the presence of God. And the more you read, you will realize that you begin to know him as a person. It's almost like he comes alive. Well, he is alive, but he comes alive in your own heart. And suddenly, if you keep doing that, prayerfully reading the word, suddenly you know him well enough that you can interpret in your life situations, what would God want me to do here? You know him like a man knows his friends. If you think I'm alone, that's fine. Try it. Try it. You can know God like a man knows his friend and he reveals himself in his word. And then you don't know him like one knows him from hearsay. You know him from face to face. And then life becomes difficult. But only in circumstances. Not in your soul. Because more and more you will experience the peace that surpasses all circumstances. Oh my goodness, time is moving on. You can become such a person. We were not made for selfishness, and therefore selfishness can never, never make us happy. People, even Christians, tried it, always looking out for number one. Depression, fear, anxiety, unhappiness is the result. We were made for a purpose. And that purpose is not to gratify our flesh, but to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To give ourselves. Young people, one other word of advice. Forget about yourself for this week. Think, how can I serve God? How can I show my love for my neighbor? And decidedly forget about your own interests for one week. And then tell your parents whether you're not more joyful more happy than you were before. Selfishness leads into destruction, leads into this depression. We were not made to take, we were made to give. And only then we can be happy. Only if we understand this, and only then we will find peace for our souls, or to close with the words of Augustine. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. May God help us that we will all experience this for the glory of God and for the well-being of his church. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, that was a long sermon. Oh, Lord, open the hearts of thy people and also the heart of this stubborn preacher. May we all come to a closer understanding of who you are. May we be sucked into the presence of our God, that we may know you like a man knows his friend. Oh, Lord, revive us and help us. I bring again to you our younger generation. Be with them, O oh living God. Let them grow up truly in the fear and nurture and admonition of thy name. I also pray for the elderly who are closer to the heaven's gates. May they become living sermons in those last days, months, or years, that they also bring glory to your name. Be with us, and once again, I also bring our dear brother, Pastor Rossi. How thankful we are for him. 
and continue to bless him for years and decades to come. For the glory of your name, we 